0: Hello, Honey's Circle listeners. This is Tamar, and I just wanted to introduce our first crossover episode with Climate Papa, which I think the name of the podcast explains itself. This is a special high holiday edition coming right in time for you to listen before Yom Kippur. Enjoy. I think the most traditional interpretation is it's a wake-up call, and I think When you can tap into that sound, um, the idea is like, it wakes your soul up and you're like, okay, I'm ready. I need to change. Like, this is the new year. I'm going to do it. You know? Yeah. welcome to climate papa this is a show about climate change technology and parenthood
1: Welcome to Climate Papa, a show about the intersection of climate change, technology, and parenthood. And I'm Ben Einelson. I'm based in Seattle and I invest in product-led climate companies. And I'm a papa to two kids, a five and a half year old girl and a two and a half year old boy. First, a little announcement for any Seattle listeners. We're having our first ever Climate Papa meetup on Wednesday, September 27th at 3.30pm in Volunteer Park. This is part of the Pacific Northwest Climate Week. As would be fitting, it's a playdate in the park. I'll be there at the playground with my kiddos and would love to see you there. The link to register for the event is in the show notes. Today's conversation is a bit different. I'm not exploring some particular issue in climate change or some particular new technology. I'm exploring a rhythm, an annual rhythm of assessment, internal reflection, and of taking action. I did not grow up observing these holidays, and in my adult life, I've done so only sporadically. But there's something really intriguing to me about the idea that there's a pattern of reflection that has held up for at least two millennia amongst the people, my people. It tells me that there's something innately sticky about that pattern to have been so useful to so many generations before me. And so today I dive into the Jewish high holidays, unpack what they mean, and how we can think about the reflection and patterns as relevant to the climate crisis. It is perhaps unsurprising, but the concerns of people today and of the stories from millennia ago are one and the same. Are we safe? Do we have food and shelter? Will the rain come when we need it, but not too much? I'm deeply appreciative to find a partner to do this exploration and study with. I'm joined by Tamar, a fellow climate podcaster. Welcome, Tamar.
0: My name is Tamar Elbeki. I have a podcast called Phony Circle, along with Rabbi Paula Rose, which is a Production of Congregation Beshalom Besh and Ahavat Vyabodat Hadamah.
1: And remind me how old one kiddo? One I kid, correctly. eight
0: years old, yeah.
1: And what is her take on Rosh Hashanah so far?
0: I haven't actually heard too much from Ella about, like, Rosh Hashanah and the meaning of it. Um, I guess they did, like, a Fetch at, sh- at school, and they were supposed to say what they were sorry for. Then there's apples and honey. So yeah, very, lots of apples and honey. Very that's, easy to relate to symbol.
1: Our two and a half year old is like, this is a holiday about apples and honey and the shofar. <laughs> he likes the shofar. He likes apples oh, yeah. and honey, and that's which, that's the meaning of the holiday. I which mean, is great
0: for most people. Yeah, that's it.
1: That's that's pretty much where it stops. A so. little hollow with yeah. honey.
0: Do you guys do? Oh yeah, yeah, okay.
1: Hollow yeah. with honey. I mean, with everything's good. Honey yeah. with everything's good. Yeah, so yeah. like, you know, when combined, you can't go wrong. Yeah. I think it would be helpful to give some of the overall context about just like the period of the high holidays and the primary things that people might know about, but also like the, I think particularly like the kind of spiritual underpinnings of them, right? Uh, not the pediatric underpinnings, but the like, <laughs> sure, what's the, you know, what is the shofar about? But also what are we actually supposed to be doing during this period? Right. So tomorrow, would you give us a little bit of Jewish High Holidays 101?
0: Um, So I think the first thing to know about the Jewish high holidays is they are at the start of the year, and the Jewish calendar is a lunar-solar calendar, which means that we want to roughly stick to the seasons, Um, so have the Passover in the spring, the high holidays in the fall, but we're strict about the months. And so the start of the year is Rosh Hashanah. That means, yeah, the head of the year. And um, the next holiday in the high holidays is called Yom Kippur, which happens about 10 days after. And then you have Sukkot, which is the holiday where we build booths in our backyard. Um, so those three holidays all together are what's called the high holidays. The theme of Rosh Hashanah is reviewing the past year seeing what our actions were in the past year and what we'd like to change and correct and then kind of coming with a clean conscious coming renewed to the new year so this like this is the birth of the world is like i am new the world is new and the possibilities are endless like we don't need to be bogged down by what mistakes we might have made last year even though you know It's all roiling, right? We're in the process of repentance and the process of looking back at what we did and, you know, being accountable at the same time as feeling free. So it's a very interesting set of holidays.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, do we think of Rosh Hashanah as a celebratory holiday? Um, Or do you think of it as a kind of a holiday of internal suffering? Or do we think of it as like, no, those actually go together and kind of intentionally so?
0: I think. Yom Kippur, which is the holiday 10 days later, is, like, definitely suffering. That's what it's about. And it's it's one thing, you know. Um, but Rosh Hashanah, I think, has elements of both. And so another traditional element of Rosh Hashanah is having, like, a huge meal. You know, just a feast. Just celebratory. Celebratory, right. And you're getting your family together, and it's, like, all about love and community um, and then we eat the apples and honey and we wish for a sweet new year. Um, and we eat this beautifully braided circular challah. Um, so that's very celebratory. But then if you actually go to synagogue and you actually look at the prayers and see what we're, we're praying about, it's it's a mixed bag, which Yom Kippur also. Um, We have some celebration, but a lot of seriousness and a lot of looking backwards and looking at what we did in the past year. So there's like a Hebrew phrase, cheshbon Hanefesh," which is an accounting of the soul. And I think some people go into much more detail than others, but it's broadly looking back at the past year and thinking about what you have done wrong. So I feel like, yeah, sin is a tricky subject in our modern culture. But it wasn't that tricky, you know, with traditional Judaism. They were like, this is right. These are the sins. Yeah, this is right. This is wrong. If you did wrong, you sinned, you know? So I think it's very interesting, like, bringing this whole system into a modern context where we're not quite as comfortable in, like, saying we sinned or that person sinned. We see things much more, you know, in a great gradation, right? But in the traditional context, like, there, you know, 613 vote or laws, and they tell you exactly what you need to do throughout the day. Um, and so interestingly, there are different sins. One is sins against God. One is sins against your fellow human being. So there's also a tradition around this time of going to people that you feel like you didn't treat well and asking them for forgiveness. So there's this idea that You know, God can forgive you sins against God, but he can't forgive your sins against your fellow human. So you actually need to make those right. You like look back on the past year and you try to, yeah, figure out all the things you did that you wished you hadn't. And then you are supposed to really feel the contriteness. So that's like the emotional part of the holidays is this feeling sorry. And that's another interpretation of the shofar is as a cry. Mm -hmm. So Mm. people crying during these holidays is like another traditional form of worship, actually. Just like really feeling sorry for what you did. And the idea is if you can truly feel that sorrow or that contriteness, that that can be... A point at which you reform
1: and then you're sitting with that for a period it seems like reflecting on that and then trying to do what like in i guess like between then and your rapport and like trying to kind of prove that to yourself and where do you go from okay i've reflected back i've i've sat with that i've yeah. maybe cried about yeah. that um yeah. To the present and then to the future.
0: Yeah. So I think it's really a period of time. So we talked about like the month leading up to Rosh Hashanah as part of the process. And then um, the, the period from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur is called Aseret Yemechuvah, which means like the 10 days of repentance. So it's actually like that whole 10 days you're supposed to be engaging in this mission. And I think that's often the time when you like go and apologize to people also is within that period. And then Yom Kippur is really the culmination of that. So you're like building up your practices and emotion until you get to Yom Kippur and then you're really going deep into it. And the idea is by the end of Yom Kippur, if you've reached that realization, then that's when you come out renewed and ready for the new year. There's like a shofar blast at the end of Yom Kippur and we might not have mentioned yet, but you're fasting, not eating or drinking anything for twenty five hours.
1: Not even not even a sip of water, right? For right. those twenty five hours.
0: So it's really like a physical process as well as a mental and emotional and spiritual one.
1: It feels all all intertwined to really like yeah, cleanse of sorts to, to get ready for the year.
0: Right. And then you have Sukkot, which is about, it's called Zaman Simplatenu, which is the time of our happiness. So it's a holiday that's supposed to be devoted to like just having joy. joy. And I think in the Jewish context, it's like very explicitly noted that joy comes from community and comes from family and friends. So there's a tradition on Sukkot of like having a lot of dinners with friends and family.
1: Just to summarize the timeline, it's you know, the month leading up to the beginning of the high holidays, which is Rosh Hashanah. You're kind of building up. You're probably in that moment of, okay, wait, let me look back of, across the last year. Rosh Hashanah, you're really focused on, let me let me sit, identify where I need to uh, make amends both to, to God, to community, to, and, and to individual humans. And then you have you know essentially 10 days of working through that, to then build up to to a one-day intensive fast and reflection, and then you kind of come out of that into the year. Simultaneously, there's still some celebration around Rosh Hashanah, around, hey, this is still the start of the year, so kind of layered in, which is which is really interesting. Let's now layer in, I think so much of it has, has a layer of, in my mind, just talking through that even, like the climate story. What does it bring up for you?
0: So I think for me... One of the most interesting corollaries is there's sin in Judaism, but in the climate movement, there are also some sins. And, you know, people discuss like, oh, we don't want to introduce shame into the equation. We want to be more open and welcoming. We don't want to focus on these downsides. But there's kind of an undercurrent of like oh you drive a gas car like how's your house heated you know like you eat meat your
1: dietary habits Yep.
0: exactly so i think that's that's kind of interesting and in like how much of the traditional techniques are useful for modern culture and how many are not like there is definitely a sense of like guilt that goes along with Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, is that useful or not useful? But I think whatever, wherever we land, I think this idea of like every single year or maybe more frequently, like coming back to our habits and everyday actions and having that cheshbon hanefesh, like that accounting of the soul, like what am I doing? What can I change? And this belief, like we can change. Um, I think that's really important. And yeah, I mean, there's also the debate of like individual actions. Do they matter? You know, is it actually up to governments or corporations? So
1: I think for me, it's all the answer tends to just be yes. Yes. uh, It is valuable at some point in the year, I think, to think about my personal setup and decisions. And I think some of those things are, I think of as one-time decisions, right? Like what type of car do you, you know, what is your transportation default to, you know, how do you heat your house? Those are these one-time infrastructure decisions, but then you have these behavioral ones, right? Like today at lunch, what are you ordering? What are you doing tomorrow at lunch? Right. And interestingly, I don't think there's been enough discussion of kind of the, of, um, religious communities and practice as probably the best, in terms of successfully changing dietary habits i saw some data actually recently i think it was in the seattle times about like people would be shocked but seattle is actually not a very vegetarian city relative to like other metropolitan areas in the us the main indicator of whether or not a city is is vegetarian is pretty much one to one tied with the size of its indian population as a percentage really the percentage of hindi population that's vegetarian it's not progressivism it's not how they vote on climate it's not p- political leaning it's actually like tied to religious tradition and you think about the jewish kosher laws and for people that observe them they observe them i mean like they don't eat pork and maybe they never have and maybe they never will so so i think i think that yes there's this personal behavioral side but that actually can sometimes be coupled to a larger cultural system where religion might be or ethnic identity or cultural identity might be one of those systems that actually guides behavioral choices
0: yeah extremely powerful like if you want a whole bunch of people like doing the same thing at the same time like religion like is one of the top ways of doing that
1: should we think about this time of year are you thinking about climate impact in this kind of cycle and and season kind of personal climate impact um or not or not so much and that's not really like how you're using the reflection
0: yeah i don't think personally i sync up um like Yom Kippur or Shishanao with climate stuff. But I, I see how it it goes. Yeah. How about you?
1: I wouldn't say that I'm thinking about it in the context of like this is how I've wronged, like this is the personal things I have done that I've wronged not sorry, God, but like I've wronged the earth uh and in, in the way that I hope it's trending. I do think I think about it more in the kind of community social justice. Like this is the ways in which I feel you know, we all need to repent for this. I'm sorrowful for the last year and the lack of progress on a number of dimensions. And I feel that um, in this marker of time. Right. And I feel like channeling that then into a motivation in the year going forward. Um, and, you know, the pressure I might put on myself to, to play a part in that more than feeling for the number of times I eat beef in the last year or, or the particular year times I had to burn gas to get around.
0: Right. So are you talking about like advocacy?
1: I haven't really decoupled advocacy, activism, social change, career and work, right? For me, I'm like intentionally bundling all of those things together. This conversation, like, what is this? Is this a, a, it is all of the above. And so it's just a desire to be further along on the journey and feeling like i'm just not happy where we are like right. we being the human species like i'm just really right. not satisfied with where we are and the plans we have and the plans we don't have yeah and i feel i think that the the kind of time of reflection would just kind of hammer that home yeah when i think about the suffering that has happened over the last year just in the last month or two that is climate related and then when i think about what's coming in the next year um, I just feel I feel that.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I would say, um, it's interesting because I feel like we've talked about Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah from a, an individual repentance point of view, but actually a lot of the prayers focus on the community and focus on the community falling short. So that's also in there.
1: Yeah, it's one of the ways. Have we not? taking care of the poor or taking care of the sick or one of the ways we haven't taken care of in our global lens the the communities that are getting hit with climate most most intensely now to
0: me that's personally probably the biggest motivation for my involvement with the climate movement is just the magnitude of human suffering that it causes and i think that comes from my judaism like in judaism there's like a major concern for suffering human beings and our responsibility for them and when i think about like what is going to cause the most suffering to people it's like climate change
1: when you think about that suffering it's hard sometimes to think about the scale right and the global scale but for you do you go to some particular region or place or set of people or is it actually more of a local impact and feel and you know, when we've had wildfires here, like where do you go when you kind of, when you broadly think about climate suffering?
0: Yeah, I think my imagination goes to the places in the world that have fewer resources and are more like directly dependent on agriculture and just the knowledge that climate change and agriculture are so tied together. And then it, is a snowball rolling down a hill from there, right? Like, if you can't farm to eat, migration and wars and everything, even epidemics sometimes, like, come from that. I'm not sure why that's where my imagination goes. I think just because locally it seems like we have it pretty good. Even if, yeah. Yeah, and I was just you know, listening to your fire podcast, which I thought was very interesting. And you were talking about like, we have children and they can't play outside. And um, when your wife was pregnant, like making sure all the windows were closed and, you know, that's not fun. But then you think about people who it's like not, are starving fair, and have to like migrate yeah. and are met with countries that are inhospitable to them when they need to move and everything like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I almost feel like when you look at the the stories and the old texts and the and the prayers, they they almost speak. They speak from a global lens, right? Because it's this all knowing, you know, divine source, and you're thinking very globally. But you think about it, there was no global lens with which to speak from. When you know when these things were written and analyzed, and the Talmud is this debate of all these people, but it's like a few people in mostly one place or in a you know a, a diaspora in a small set of communities. What's so fascinating about climate change, it, it feels like one of the first crises we actually kind of have a global lens on, maybe the pandemic being a more acute other example, where you're like actually seeing these impacts ripple across into these communities. On one hand, it's fairly unnatural, right, for us to understand starvation happening on the other side of the world. On the other hand, what a powerful tool with which to execute the ideal, internal ideal of, of that, which is like truly kind of a human centered everyone everywhere should have food security everyone everywhere should have water security you know without that like what are we doing as a as a wealthy species that's invented all these amazing things and has all of this privilege but like there are people who don't have clean water hundreds of millions of people that don't have clean water and that and then are we going to go backwards or forwards on that trajectory with climate and it's quite um yeah right quite a moment
0: yeah and i think you're right like judaism and our texts are very like focused on the direct experience and they're not actually that global but i think even in you know the first five books there's starting to creep in this like more universal idea of ethics there's this um section of the torah i love where it's like don't uh, oppress the widow and the orphan because if you do, I will kill you and your wife will be a widow and your kid will be an orphan which like, you know, it's a little grim Um, this is what they call Old Testament justice but I think if you really think about it, it's saying there's nothing special about you like you're not blessed, you're not lucky you could be in the same position as these people who you consider lower than you and you feel free oppressing or ignoring, right? And I think that's like the root of saying these people who happen to be born in a part of the world where they're relying directly on the crops in the ground and they're feeling the effects of climate change today, it's like, you know, they're the exact same as you. You know, it was just luck that we ended up in Seattle and they ended up there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think food is is an anchoring issue to like that threads through this as well, right? We talked about Rosh Hashanah, you're like eating a sweet thing and then you're having a festive meal and kind of, you know, celebrating it. and then you have this building up to a day where you, I mean, it's actually quite unusual, right? To like in today's world, to truly spend 25 hours not consuming a single thing, experiencing just for a moment, removing the abundance of kind of that consumption. And I think that's an interesting reflection moment to build into all of this. Does it build a gratitude for that? Does it build a realization? It's just like a stark contrast between the the everyday abundance that we all have.
0: Yeah, definitely. And actually the holiday of Sukkot, which we haven't talked about quite as much, of like you're supposed to build a very temporary dwelling outdoors and the roof is just made of leaves so it can rain through. Part of the message is that same message, like you're supposed to live in this temporary dwelling. And not many people do, but some people actually sleep out there. Um, the message is like you have a house, and you're blessed to have a house, but tomorrow you could lose your house. And it's interesting
1: that thinking about like all the Jewish holidays, even Shabbat and Passover with matzah. Right, all of them have this like experiential element. It seems let's simulate something here, right? <laughs> right? Let's like si- let's let's simulate not having you know, food and water, let's simulate not having the house, let's simulate not having leavened bread, let's simulate not having all of this work being done, because this is a day of rest. And I think it's an interesting thing to build into reflection, to put ourselves in the place of kind of climate catastrophe, like, I mean, it seems like some of them already aligned, because food scarcity has always been a concern of human, right? Shelter scarcity has always been a thing. If we were to design kind of a climatism high holiday schedule, what, you know what would we want to simulate in order to uh to awaken us right? right to to suffering ultimately uh in on one dimension
0: yeah, yeah, I mean, I had not thought about that either, but I think you're right. And there are these like- ca- catastrophic floods all over the world, and a major suffering in that scenario is losing one's house the sukkah is symbolizing that and Yom Kippur is like not eating and that's talking about food scarcity that's interesting to like if we were to do a climatist holiday what would we introduce but one thing I wanted to bring up is I just read this book called um, A Paradise Built in Hell. Have you read that?
1: Mm, I have not read that.
0: Okay I would definitely recommend it Um, and it's this woman I believe she's a journalist, but she consults a lot of uh, disaster sociologists, people who actually study disasters and what happened in them. And what she finds is that in a lot of disasters, people become their better selves. So they actually, like whole communities come out and find a purpose. So she was talking about, like, 9-11 and how many. There were thousands of private boat owners that came and transported people away from uh, Manhattan. And the same happened in Katrina. Like, these people would come on their boat like individuals. And this idea, I think it's actually really good to keep in mind because we have this fear of disasters, which we should, and they cause untold suffering. But they also really bring out these, like, beautiful communities. And I think, you know, that's present in Jewish holidays as well of just always having that community coming together. And yeah, that's a very important part of us addressing climate change is creating these communities, you know, where there's like love and encouragement. And I heard you talk about this on your other podcasts about how your experience of working in the climate, like, yeah. Even like in these capitalist systems, which people often associate with like cutthroat and like backstabbing and um zero sum games, you were saying like you actually find so much camaraderie and so much encouragement. We should, yeah, build our climatist holiday around that too.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. I think that there's something like when a disaster happens the kind of foundation, the infrastructure we built around ourselves that kind of protects our our psyche from disaster and kind of the probability of disaster all of a sudden has, has popped, right? Whenever I've had you know, a couple of traumatic moments in my life where like something has happened that just was not, was not in my mind possible that day I woke up. And I think most of us experienced this for March 2020 where I was like, wait, this isn't possible. I didn't know we could do this to our society, but like certainly it is possible. And in fact, it's probable. We just didn't really re- think about it. Um and I think you're right that something about that popping causes a truly a more human element to then be exposed because those layers of, Oh, well, might have an important work meeting. Well, who cares about the work meeting when the twin towers are falling? Right. Like there are people that need rescuing. We go do it. I think about two things. One simultaneously, right. Like, how do we kind of get people into a place to be able to respond to things? But then I also think about how do you actually Simulate that, or bring that forward in a useful way to channel that responsive energy in a way that doesn't require acute disaster. Is that even possible? Is there something in the holidays or some lessons there where you say, "Hey, well, let's 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 not require the actual flooding of Seattle to feel we need to do something about our impact on climate or prepare, you know, other cities that that need our support." The flip side of this is, I think there's actually also default human kind of tribal protectionism that I think can be channeled if you have kind of the sense of a common foe and common enemy. And that's also very challenging with climate because it's a parts-per-million gas problem that is feels divine in scope. I'm just curious what sort of rhythms we can build into either new rhythms or an additional layer, maybe, to the existing rhythms we have in the year to simulate that and trigger the most intense feeling going into the year of, no, like we actually... Need to feel the urgency of this thing, even if the flooding's not at our doorstep yet. we need to act like it is and rally together like it is, and bring community together like it is. if we're gonna pause and spend the you know some fraction of the ten days in this moment of you know what we need to do going into next year, it's feels like it must be that right if we can again, if we have the privilege of doing that, if we don't have you know other acute needs
0: um yeah, yeah, and I think you know part of the beauty of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is whatever you may feel about the concept of sin. It's this idea that we're not destroyed by it, right? We can respond to it and we can change and we can start over. So I think having that be part of our, like, year in our thought cycle, whatever cycle we go on is like when we hear about a devastating flood or like a humongous wildfire, it can kind of knock us down. And I think there's a danger when we face the disasters like too fully, just being like, we're done. (laughs) You know, and just like I "I can't I can't do anything. This is horrible. It'll just get worse. Like I'm just, like, knocked over by it, right? And is there a cycle, like, for our mind that we can go through where we face the disasters head on and, you know, face the truth and get that motivation of fear, but, like, not too much fear that we're knocked down, and then we can say, actually, we can do something about it, and that, like, renews our vigor for the fight.
1: It is a hard um, space to sit in. I think that there's a recent some recent commentary I read online, and then I think someone pointed to a study on this, that people who are working on climate, at least in the kind of like climate tech community that I'm somewhat a part of, they feel like some sense of optimism because in a way, like they have this channel, I think a, a place to put the energy, to put the reaction of, okay, well, what am I going to, there's a thing over here. At the same time, I read, unfortunately, that people who mostly spent the last few years on the kind of activism side of things, um, kind of direct protests, activism, political action, have felt the opposite, have felt most dismayed, most burnt out. And I think that's really concerning, even though the tool set I tend to use is the climate tech tool set in terms of the tool I'm using as action. I think the activism and political activism is foundational, fundamental, and and needs recurring energy that isn't just burning people out. And I think that layering in existing communities, existing religious practice, like to support those, to prop those up, to show up is perhaps one tool we have to say, we've, as a people, as a human species, as a Jewish people, as a engaged people, like we've done hard things before. This isn't the first time we faced existential crises at least in little pockets it is different but like we've worked through those burnout cycles before and there's and probably the biggest tool is one of community and one of community support and one of kind of like no you are not alone and that and those those relationships and i think the more that people the more people can kind of engage in these systems the more the less alone the activists on the front lines feel and are
0: and that's a hard one but i do feel that Jewish tradition can help us with this because, you know, through our Jewish history, we've faced existential crises, just, you know, being persecuted in different places, the Spanish Inquisition, the Holocaust, um, pogroms, and we've had this tradition that keeps us going. And what about that tradition has worked? I don't know, but I think community, as you said, is like a huge part of it um that
1: foundational pull back to your fundamental relationships, your fundamental yeah, community exactly feels like the consistent thread to pull,
0: right, but you know there's also celebrations, which feels a little weird when you're like running from someone right to celebrate, but we keep doing it,
1: yeah, stories of people celebrating Hanukkah in the concentration camp you have to uh that might be what makes you feel human in a way that, right. that you need to in that moment to give, to give some hope. Um, to the Jewish tradition, I know you had found a great text. But I guess it's technically like a poem that became tradition to, to read.
0: I feel like a lot of the prayers are poetry written in different centuries.
1: So what So what is this text?
0: It's a pretty famous prayer from both. Actually, Leonard Cohen made it into a song
1: Amazing. I'll have to yeah. dig that up.
0: Or do you want to read it? Sure, sure. I'm
1: happy to read it. <laughs>
0: okay, go for it.
1: On Rosh Hashanah it is inscribed, and on Yom Kippur it is sealed. How many shall pass away, and how many shall be born? Who shall live, and who shall die? Who in good time, and who by an untimely death? Who by water, and who by fire? Who by sword, and who by wild beast? Who by famine, and who by thirst? Who by earthquake, and who by plague? Who by strangulation and who by lapidation? Who shall have rest and who wander? Who shall be at peace and who pursued? Who shall be serene and who tormented? Who shall become impoverished and who wealthy? Who shall be debased and who exalted? But repentance, prayer, and righteousness avert the severity of the decree.
0: Yes, yeah, so that line um, that you just read, is in Hebrew, so I would say that's if I were to choose a tagline for the high holidays, that would be it. For me, why this stood out as like a prayer that really relates to climate change is first of all, it kind of details um, the suffering and the death that can accompany like fire, water. You know, we've already talked about these huge wild- Famine and thirst. Famine's thirst, exactly. Who will wander the migration that's associated with climate change. And it even talks about rich and poor. And to me, that's like so entangled with climate change. I'm like, the poor are suffering and the rich are pumping global- Pumping oil. Yeah, exactly. But then the last line of repentance, prayer, and charity avert the- the evil decree or what was the translation that you had this,
1: this is the severity of the, the severity
0: decree. like that's even better because i feel like you know for you in the field of climate aversion technology it's like that's exactly what we're trying to do yeah we're trying to like make it less like we climate change has already caused so much disaster and suffering like it's going to cause more. What we're trying to do is reduce that, right?
1: Yeah, this is like an overly nerdy interpretation, but I, I'm trying to relate this to like how things map in my head. There's this idea that in Rosh Hashanah, it's written down in the book of, of life, like how the year's gonna unfold. And then Yom Kippur 10 days later, it's, it's sealed, right? Then that's actually happening. And then I guess the statement is, repentance, prayer, and righteousness are done in those 10 days. I mean reflection, the work you do now can alter... The severity of you know what gets sealed, right? And mapping that directly to climate, like we go through these annual cycles of the IPCC report and our climate modeling, and we kind of inscribe, right? If you were uh, what our plan is for the year and what's happening, you know, in twenty, you know, twenty twenty four and twenty twenty five, when we think about our emissions budgets and blah 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 blah. But that's different than what actually happens. And there's time delays and there's periods and there's massive air bars on these things. And there's this room to, like, that is all a human-driven decision. It is not the laws of physics that says we must pump this much oil and we must burn this much. It is the systems in which we operate and the decisions with which we all have. And some of those are, again, the government deciding something, a company deciding something, myself in my own home deciding something. But there's this room. It is not... Back to the nihilistic, like, oh, there's nothing we can do. The nothing we could do would say on Rosh Hashanah, it is inscribed and sealed, (laughs) right? And that's not what it says. Like the whole point is there's this room to change the trajectory that we're on in our life, in our systems, in our society, in our community, and in our climate. And that room to me makes all the difference of, of hope because that's where there's, that's where there's, that's where we can do something. And so it, that again also reflects the reality of the suffering. There will be famine. There will be war. There will be thirst. Like we're, like you know, we always want a better society, but for the foreseeable future, will be rich people and poor people, and, and changes in the situations. But how it changes and to what severity is the work we can all do is is to bend that. That feels like a deeply motivating framing
0: for something of this scale. Yeah, definitely. And what do you think about the three, the three ways of averting? Or lessening the evil decree.
1: Yeah, I was trying to like map these. You know, just be. I grew up pretty secular, and I don't. I like. I have a hard time in my When I read the word prayer. It doesn't like hit me in a. In, you know, in a really like natural way. And so earlier today, I was of course chatting with my friend Chat GPT to like try and map these into something that like just like it would hit me. It would hit me harder, and. And what me and uh, the GPT agreed on was that like a secular kind of mapping for me was like repentance is the kind of looking at personal responsibility and growth. Prayer is really like the reflection and clarity and kind of centering a purpose. And then Sadaka and charity is the like compassion, generosity, and kind of focus on community and then doing that work. And that, yeah, that hits pretty well in terms of, you know, repentance is back to like, let's do the IPCC assessment. Let's go and assess the situation with pretty honest eye. This is the situation. This is what we understand. This is, you know, the best minds in the world trying to make sense of it. But then I actually think that's, that tends to be where the kind of science tends to stop and we get a little stuck. But like the prayer then is the the tefillah is to sit in that and work through our range of motion. And like, what could we do? It's not actually doing anything yet, but it's like, it's the, it's the kind of sticky, what could we do? What can we do? What do we need to go do? What do we need to invest in? Like what, what are all the paths here? And then to me, the I guess the tzedakah is the like, let's go do some things.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I think repentance is all about um, taking that accounting, as you said, and seeing how we can change. To me, prayer, you know, I really liked how you said that it's about creativity it's like a very, yeah. inter- it's all about the mind, right? Um. But then I think these three things are not just about individuals at this point, but whole societies, whole groups, right? So how can we as a group get that creativity? But how can we as a group, like, get those other emotions or states of consciousness or, like, mind processes that we need so, like the motivation, right? The acknowledgement that we're all in a community together, the hope when we need hope, the like compassion when we need compassion. And then, yeah, tzedakah is traditionally charity, but you said righteousness, another word that it can be translated into is justice. Um, and again, it's like, Seeing all the human beings on Earth and how are they all being affected and feeling that responsibility, and then going out and acting on that.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping in that word, it's that transition from the the feeling to the doing right. in that right. Like that's, that's where right. the actual act, that's where the action can take place. That's it's kind right. Of you, you've you've moved from analysis and reflection, you know, which are super necessary. It's like I think of it as like you're measuring and pointing, but then now you're actually like going right. In that, like, what is it to have a nice a bunch of nice feelings about how the world should be better and feel social justicey, but then you don't actually do a single thing? (laughs) Right. It's nice you had the thoughts, and the it's 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 literally the thoughts and prayers. It's literally the thoughts and (laughs) prayers, right? (laughs) That's right. Just to tie it back to, I don't know. I mean, you want to piss off some uh, progressive Seattle parents? Let's talk about thoughts and prayers, like, and climate and gun violence and many of her world's ills, not a single one stops at thoughts and prayers. And if you return to our religious text here of the, the Judeo-Christian religion, it, it doesn't stop at thoughts and par- prayers. It goes, you know, you got to go to the tzedakah, You got to do the work.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And in some cases, that means, in my mind, you know, stop selling the guns. It means <laughs> yeah. you know, we need to transition off of fossil fuels. We need to Work on inequality. It doesn't stop just for feeling bad.
0: Right. Right. What's the action? But I think, you know, you could just say giving charity will avert the evil decree or lessen the evil decree. But Hmm. I think it's important to have that intellectual side ever present and have that emotional side ever present and like keep rolling. Yeah. Keep thinking about it. Keep feeling and doing and like rolling through all three, you know. And all three are very important.
1: Absolutely. They go they go together like it is a I need to understand the problem, I need to sit with all the ways I can work on it, and then I need to go do the work and I need to keep iterating. Right. Through that, I guess in our internal selves this is set up as an annual tradition. But corporations have their quarterly rhythms of goal setting, analysis and you know in the climate cycles we have various methods of doing this but i think um i think another thing you're hitting on is the there's kind of like scientific analytical element of accounting but then there's also putting yourself in the emotional space to understand the impact of those things
0: yeah i mean i think like intellectual and emotional are always tied up right but um the way I was thinking of it is repentance is the more intellectual and the prayer is the more, more emotional. Um, but yeah, you talk you talked earlier about burnout. Like that's an emotional state that could really put an end to a lot of the action. Like being able to actually be aware of the emotional things that are happening and how they affect what is being done or what isn't being done is so important. The motivation or demotivation i think the community aspect of things also has an emotional side right like what are the emotions we're creating within our community do people feel included and loved and encouraged within the community are we creating like that feeling when people encounter climate change work Um, And I thought it was beautiful the way you described, like, what you've experienced of your community and how that's really helped you and encouraged you. Like, can we create that feeling in other, you know, in the activist community as well, Um, in the individual responsibility community, you know?
1: Yeah. And another layer to this I'm just thinking about is this is really talking about this, like, default annual rhythm, right, tied to the high holidays. but. One one really big challenge with most things in climate, particularly if you think of you know, abating emissions, is the positive impacts of that. It's Well, first of all, the extent to which you feel positive impacts is kind of a never. It's like less negative impacts. But even the extent to which you kind of can feel measure the less negative impact, it's certainly not an annual cycle for most of these things. That's hard, I think. I think there's a reason this is set to this annual rhythm of, hey, this is what's going to happen. It's seasonal, as you said. Like, what is a year? Well, it's the, you know, in the human sense, it's like these four seasons have passed, and we've looped back around, and the sun's back in the same position as it was. And so we're kind of naturally tying this to this rhythm, while the climate system and the way we've been changed kind of happens closer to it, you know, on a decadal rhythm. and And so... That's the way I think about it a little bit. I think about like my, you know, my responsibility over the next decade and the impact I could make over a decade because the impacts are kind of felt, you know, in the decade or two after that for most of the things I'm thinking about. And that also is a hard motivation to pull from, given our desire to see things happen a little bit more on a human timescale.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um One thing that that made me think of is I've started subscribing to a newsletter, email newsletter called Future Crunch. So it's actually a good news newsletter. They don't just tell individual stories. They will often tell like stories of whole countries or of whole ecosystems. And they will tell stories of like, I think it's a city in Spain. They decided to pave over the highway so the highways would be tunnels instead of above ground um Ah. and what had previously happened is the highways were close to rivers and all the runoff would run into the river and so instead they like made their highway a tunnel and put a park on top and so the rivers Mm -hmm. had a chance to recover and this is like a decadal story this happened i think in the early aughts and they're like okay now we're looking coming back to the story in 2023 like 15, 20 years later and like, look at all these species that are here that weren't here before. Look at yeah. the clarity of the water. Look at how many of the citizens are every single day out in these parks. And I think you're right. Like, it's so hard to engage with work that will only have payoff in 10, 20 years. But maybe part of it is reading other people's stories, right? reading right. other people who have engaged in these decadal quests and have actually achieved beautiful things.
1: That, that can't help but remind me of, I think, one of the teachings that your podcast is connected to, right?
0: Boni was this miracle worker in the times of the Talmud, and he was famous for drawing a circle in the sand because there was a, a drought it hadn't rained and people were going hungry. And I think that's another way that the Talmud really reflects back on our modern times. And so he said to God, I will not leave this circle until you make it rain. And so then God made like a lot of rain and he's like, that's too much. A little rain, that's too little. So he like negotiated God to the right amount of rain. Classic. Um, But the story you were talking about is there's another story um, where he goes for a walk and he sees a guy planting a carob tree and he asks why would you plant a carob tree don't you know it doesn't fruit for decades and the guy says well when I came here there were carob trees my ancestor planted carob trees for me I'm planting carob trees for my descendants. Here, this idea of the importance of doing work for future generations, but then there's this extra funny bit where he turns into, like, a Rip Van Winkle and goes to sleep for 70 years and then wakes up and there's, like, this full carob tree and then a flock of goats from the one goat that he met 70 years ago. So with the Talmud, it's always, like, you know, deep and inspirational stories side by side with, like, silly stuff
1: (laughs) quirkiness. Exactly. There's something powerful about that first story there too, that kind of challenging God to make it rain, I think. Um, I mean, to me it's like, it's the ultimate activist story. I guess that's how I interpret it. I forget coming up against, you know, the human political system or the fossil fuel companies. <laughs> like, I'm gonna look in the sky and challenge God to like keep this drought going because we need water, we need food. Not only that, but I'm gonna like then negotiate the right route. <laughs> um, there's something there, right? There's something interesting about being inspired by this activist story and um and the idea that like we can't put up with this level of suffering that's right well thank you for for the work you're doing and continuing to do to to bring more people along on your journey and thanks for this conversation it was really um i'm really grateful just personally that we're the, to reflect on all of the holidays in this context because um yeah, I felt a little bit hungry for that, and didn't quite get that in the in the kids' service. We were able to make it to. <laughs>
0: yeah, thank you. I really appreciate all of the new insights you've given me into like things I've thought about for, you know, thirty five years. It's just that's part of the cool part of the Torah is like something new pops up every time you look at it.
1: Yeah, we we will keep filling books with debate about the same thing. That's that's the. Uh, I mean, I think that's something in here of just like. Yes, we're concerned with new things. I'm concerned with heat pumps and furnaces and these things. But like the fundamental concerns are the same fundamental concerns we've had for thousands of years. What are we actually concerned with? We're concerned with safety and food and water and shelter and future generations. This is where I just think, I don't know, you get this where You can also get some hope that like the political debate, the the differences, the divides, like there's actually this fundamental foundational commonness that stretches not just between between groups, but stretches, I mean, I could not feel more different on one hand from the people who kind of wrote and and debated these texts. At the same time, like the foundational underpinnings are the same about, you know, what we all hope for.
0: Right, exactly. And I would say not only are, you know, a lot of the physical realities the same despite our technology, but um, the emotional reactions to those realities are the same. And how do we process those? How do we process our fears, our hopes? Um, Yeah. Community—it's all still pertinent. It's
1: all, it's all the same stuff, or so,
0: yeah. <laughs> all
1: right, tomorrow. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Well, that's episode twelve of Climate Papa. And if you enjoyed this episode and don't want to miss out on any future ones, please make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Ratings are also deeply appreciated. And please send me a note anytime to Ben at ClimatePapa.com. I love hearing from listeners about. What they thought about the episode, getting guest suggestions, or just a note about whatever's on your mind. And with that, our music is the Balkan Bump remix of Mellow Kind of Hype by Slink and Lazy Syrup Orchestra. Let's have them take us out. On we go like...